Hello, and welcome to Radio Freak Utopia, the podcast about global LGBTI human rights. I'm your host, Ian Likas, and here on Radio Freak Utopia, I'll be your guide to some of the amazing work happening around the world to make our communities more welcoming for LGBTI people. These are extraordinary times if you're lesbian or gay, bisexual or transgender, if you're queer, genderqueer, intersex, or if your life just doesn't fit neatly into all those labels and little boxes we use to talk about sexuality and gender. These are times of remarkable progress, political progress, cultural progress, uh, legal progress, um, but there are also times of hostile, even violent backlash, often at the same time, sometimes in the very same place. So I'm launching RFQ, Radio Freak Utopia, to boost the signal for those creative, resilient people doing essential work for LGBTI people and other sexual and gender minorities, often in places you might not expect. Over the months to come, I'll say lots more about the vision I have for this podcast, about the community I want to build, and why this is the time for Radio Freak Utopia. For this first episode, I had the chance to speak recently with Aruj Arshad. When I started planning this podcast, I knew immediately that I wanted to interview uh, Aruj, a fierce and fabulous Pakistani-American immigrant working for reproductive justice and against Islamophobia, homophobia, and transphobia. Aruj's journey from Karachi to Illinois to Washington, D.C. captures several storylines that will be at the heart of the podcast uh, for for years and months to come. One, that none of us live single-issue lives, but rather, with apologies to Walt Whitman, we dwell in multitudes and complexities and contradictions at all sorts of intersections. Two, we live in a world of constant motion, of migration and immigration, of course, but also where our ideas, our language, our politics are traveling as well, through global pop culture, through social media, and the 24-hour news cycle, where there's always a give and take of borrowing and pushback of power and resistance. So I had the chance recently to sit down with Aruj in her offices at Advocates for Youth in Washington, and here's our conversation. All right. So one of the questions I'm asking everybody is, how did you get involved with activism? Mm. I just I just talked about this to a student that I met with earlier. Um, activism came early to me in the sense that I grew up in Pakistan and... Um, even though I had a good uh, sort of sense of, like, family support and education and kind of, like, supported in ed- my education and access to that and didn't feel any different around my access to education my brothers, I felt there was definitely um, cultural um, kind of enforcements around gender that started to become more obvious when I became like a teenager, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that is also in general globally happens uh, to girls as they're, in, they're getting older, they sort of, they become more limited in terms of what they can access. And so I felt that very keenly. Um, and especially once I got my period, I thought that my, I was pregnant because that's the worst thing that could have happened to me, even though I've never been around boys or I didn't actually even know the mechanics of how one does get pregnant. But um, but it was sort of this, um, this biggest fear that I had and I didn't know and no one had told me like we didn't have any like sex ed at school mm-hmm. uh, it was all academics and um, and so my mom basically yelled at me for you know she based or st- very sternly talked to me about um, uh, about having a period and she said you know you should stay away from boys it's something you it basically made me feel like I should be ashamed of this and once I realized that it wasn't something shameful, that it was actually something natural, I got really angry at why was there was some secrecy and silence and taboo around it. And so even though I didn't have that language, I kind of 
felt the anger and I also felt angry around having to do things differently because I was a girl and having to kind of uphold my family's like credibility and sort of I hate to use the word honor because it's so loaded but like uh, for Muslim context but really like feeling like I, I have to be good I have to no, I can't be angry I have no agency around my body around my career um, because I happen to be a girl so that's kind of how I kind of pre-activism got activated though mm. and when I came to the US um, and went to college and went and started um, at a at, I took a women's studies class um, I was a bio pre-med major as many South Asians but I it was a liberal arts you know like they encouraged us to take liberal arts classes and so I ended up taking women's studies class and that completely changed my life because I realized what I had been feeling all this time was actually connected to this larger framework and sort of there was a whole um, kind of um, framework around it and um, and so that really is sort of what really started me to under put words into what I was feeling but I date my activism to like back in Pakistan and how I had started to feel and respond in terms of who I was or wanted to be and the pushback around that. Uh, and you, your family emigrated from uh, Karachi to mm -hmm. Chicago. Yeah, Chicago and suburbs. Chicago yeah. suburbs. And where did you go to college? I went to Champaign-Urbana, University oh, okay. of Illinois. Yeah. Cool. How did uh, you plunge into activism on campus? Um, my first, so I, you know, I took women's studies and that activated me in a certain way. And then my first, I would say, kind of official going into activism was uh, Take Back the Night. I attended it one year and really was became very excited about sort of this idea of taking up space. At, and I related to that as someone who had grown up in Pakistan and hadn't felt like I could take up space, especially in public, uh, to sort of um, plugged into activism on campus. And so I was part of it one year, and then like I, I participated, and the next year I was actually one of the organizers for it on campus. So that was, I would say, one of, like, you know, just kind of immediately sort of, or, you know, a year on campus is actually years in, like, you know, in, uh, in other ways. But I was, you know, becoming slowly sort of, or, or like, involved in activism, and then I became the co-organizer. And so that, would, I would say, would be my first sort of throw myself in there. And, I mean, you know, once I started the idea for this podcast, I knew that you were one of the you know, first people I wanted to talk to because, you know, one, the combination of a life that you've said elsewhere, you're dedicated to uh, you know, working at the intersections of LGBTQ issues and you know, anti-Islamophobia, mm -hmm. uh, but also just the sheer fabulousness that <laughs> you bring to all this. Uh, oh, I think I've told you. you elsewhere how... You know, I was new to D.C. Yeah. And, you know, sort of wandering around this reception with, as, <laughs> right. as D.C. life is. <laughs> right, receptions. And, and suddenly finding myself in a conversation with you and our common friend, Randall, yeah. and sort of like, these are my people. This is, <laughs> this is what I moved to D.C. for. <laughs> yes, yes. So how, you know, sort of clearly as somebody who found feminism, as somebody who, fa you know, at some point uh, identified as queer, mm. um... Yeah, but also, you know, sort of that you've lived at these, these intersections are your life. They're not some academic construct, even as that gives you tools. Right. How has that, um, you know, how should, how would it be helpful to others to think about those intersections and sort of as it guides your journey? Hmm. Mm hmm. So that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, when I think about my life now, I, it's so easy to say, 
I exist at these intersections in a way because I have so much community. I have so many friends and really any part of my identity that I need support around, I feel like I have someone in my life that completely supports that. Um, but I know that wasn't always like that. I really struggled in college. I came out in a really white space and actually... Um, even though I'm femme identified now, I didn't understand that I could be femme in that very white way. Like I also went to school in the Midwest in the mid 90s, uh, mid to late 90s. And the, the, the concept of a queer woman was, you know, someone who had plaid, who wear combat boots, like short hair maybe. And so I actually subscribed to that because, which my, none of my friends believe when I, when I tell them that, that actually I did have a more masculine presentation um, because that's the only way I thought I could be read as queer. And it was very important to me to be read as queer because I was, I'm brown and so I didn't think that people would otherwise understand me to be to be queer. Um, and so it took me a while to figure out sort of even my femme identity. And I think I've spent so many years just teasing out different parts of who I am and bring them forward into the world. Um, and what I would say to people is to try to, um, to understand that just because your LGBT is not, that's not necessarily my primary identity, right? So in the, in, in context, um, right now for me to be, to be Muslim identified or to have a family who is a mom who is uh, religious and um, a brother who, whose name is Ali Muhammad, like those are things to me that right now really I struggle around in terms of their safety. And so, you know, I, when I go into sort of especially white mainstream LGBT spaces, uh, this idea that that's the only identity that I would that I would be subscribing to is, is really is really tough because I'm bringing in all of the other pieces that I have, that is being an immigrant, being Muslim, um, coming from Pakistan, on specifically because even within South Asian spaces they tend to be Indian and Hindu dominated by default so there's a lot of defaultness that happens and so uh, for me to speak my truth I have to bring all of those identities in and I want people to see all of that I want people to understand that how difficult it is to be in the intersections and to especially in this moment um, I know there's so much organizing going on and I think that is exciting but to continue to to look at that intersection and to understand that for people who have multiple identities, um, like they have lived complicated lives and how how they can um, they can they can support that, you know. So now I have friends who are asking me, well, how can I support you as someone who's Muslim, you know? And maybe that didn't come up for them before, but I'm I'm really appreciative that they are asking that question now. What are the some of the uh, you know, places and you know experiences that helped you? Articul you know, find this wholeness and sort of uh, come to peace with, uh, peace is the wrong word, but mm. to sort of find this, give language to this experience. Mm -hmm. I think part of it was having some amazing role models. Mm -hmm. um, so because if, because if there's an identity that I had, like, for example, when I met my first other Pakistani queer person, that to me was incredible because before that, I didn't know that that was an option and that was possible. So really, I'm very grateful because that I have met so many people in my life that have um, been sort of role models for me and to see. And, you know, some of it I had to piece together because maybe I'm, you know, so the femme, going back to the femme piece, I when I moved to Chicago, I met a femme queer working class white woman who um, I looked up to and 
she was femme and that changed my life you know I was like so wait it's possible to be femme and queer like I didn't know this and so we went thrift store shopping together I was starting to like figure out like what my gender expression around being femme could look like um, so you know so she wasn't completely all of my identities but she was part of my identity and so I was able to um, sort of look up to her and uh, use her as a resource um, for for that so I think that and then I met Faisal Alam for example in 1999 who I'd heard of was doing He's from Pakistan. He was doing work around LGBT Muslims. Before that, I being Muslim, I mean, it was somewhere in the back of my mind, but definitely it was pre-9-11. And so as someone who grew up in Pakistan as, um, you know, I think I'm inherently secular, right? So, like, to me, being Muslim is part of my cultural experience. And so for a long time, I, it was sort of, like, I didn't think about it, you know? Or maybe I thought about, maybe I didn't think that there was in any way I could, like, think about it. So, like, for me, being South Asian was, um, like, more of a piece that I connected with people. Um, but meeting Faisal really changed my life, you know? Because I, I thought, wow, it's actually someone who's working on these intersections, and I'm... I, I'm interested. I don't know how I fit in because I'm not religious. And then 9-11 happened, and that, of course, changed everything. And then I felt like I, whether, you know, I want to or not, I am someone who does identify in a certain way as Muslim, and this is a very marginalized identity now. And so how can I um, kind of work on that or kind of organize around that? Did you get involved with the group that uh, Faisal uh, founded? Yeah, so Faisal founded the Al Fatiha Foundation uh, in 1999 and uh, or 98, um, and um, I. What, I did go to one of the conferences and I went to one of the convenings in New York, um, which was incredible. I did feel at that point that because I, I wasn't someone who struggled around religiosity, that maybe I shouldn't take up space in that particular way, that maybe other people who are really struggling around um, their religious practice and being queer and trans. Uh, however, I FESA was always very supportive, and so I did end up going to some of these and the one in San Francisco was amazing it was pre-9-11 it was right in 2001 um, it was the first time Al-Fatiha was going to march in this big way in the San Francisco Pride Parade and and that was huge you know in that moment um, because during those during those times it was it was tough to be out as LGBT Muslim um, because there was many concerns around safety I mean there's still now but in that moment there was definitely much more issues around safety so um um, yeah, so I did get involved um, a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's really after 9-11 that I really felt the calling much more strongly to get involved. And how did that sort of play out? So that played out in the sense that I became more active in sort of um, programming. So I remember the 2005 conference, I was more actively involved around the programming piece of it. And uh, and then I actually was on the board for a little bit on Al-Fatiha Foundation's board. Unfortunately, Al-Fatiha ended up closing its doors. Um, and there was a big hiatus between the last programming, which was in 2005, and then 2011. It's real kind of me and Fessel kind of restarted some sense of organizing and so because nothing had happened in that time period and there wasn't that was the only national LGBT Muslim org that had existed so um yeah so in 2011 me and Faisal coordinated the first LGBT Muslim retreat and for LGBT Muslims and their partners and um and that's uh, kind of the restart of the retreats and um, and sort of a, a space for LGBT Muslims that hadn't existed for a while, and then also we um, we 
along with many other people, co-founded what is now called the Muslim Alliance for Sexual and Gender Diversity, which is sort of um, now the LGBT national Muslim national organization. I was wondering about the arc between those two organizations, mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. really helps me flesh it out. Yeah. So what are some of the things that the alliance concretely does? So one of the biggest pieces that we do is the um, the retreat that happens. It's been happening every year since 2011, and that brings together LGBT Muslims and their partners. Um, it's a space that um, brings, I mean, there's nothing like that that exists, you know. Um, it's a space that um, kind of... Is a is a is a sanctuary for people to come. You know, LGBT Muslims, even if they're living in urban areas, um, there's a sense of a de- a isolation because you're 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 you know you're at least a double minority, if not more, um, because people because people associate Islam as sort of this terrible, hateful um, religion, um, especially during this administration's campaigning and the elections, you know, as you might know, the hate crimes have really risen. Um, like the, 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 the amount of hate crimes that are happening are similar to when after 9-11. So there's a lot of hatred that had just been lurking under the surface that this uh, administration was able to exploit. And so there's a heightened, you know, sort of sense of Islamophobia again, not that it kind of went away, you know, I mean, after 9-11, we've been, you know, someone called it as like low grade PTSD. To be Muslim in this country is to live with low-grade PTSD because we're constantly afraid, we're constantly worried about our family, about um, kind of, you know, whether physical or cultural or emotional or, you know, verbal violence. Um, and so, and like not understanding who we are. So, um, so it's been, it's been, um, it's been a struggle um, to kind of, kind of put together all of those identities. And what was your, what was the original question? Um. <laughs> I, th- I, I think you've answered it, even though I'm no longer sure. That's how this goes. Um, and I mean, and you've done a couple, at least two great interviews that I know. You know, the, the Metro Weekly interview was really mm-hmm, powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, or, you know, the piece you wrote on Blingistan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Yes. Uh, and I'm going to link to those when, when I produce and post this episode. Uh, but it strikes me that there is, you know, Blingistan. <laughs> is a place we should be talking about. Right, right. And that sort of actually fits with the journey you're describing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so can you tell definitely. us more about that? Yeah, so in some ways, the I, I came up with the word Blingistan because it's sort of my own sense of uh, home. It's, yeah. a, it's a sort of a journey home. Um, when I left Pakistan at 17, almost 17, I was very traumatized, you know, because of everything that I've talked about in terms of experiencing, and I was kind of shutting down. I was sort of not able to respond to what the society expected me to and so I visually describe it as some, you know started only wearing white or very very pl- as much as possible because in Pakistani context it's very difficult clothing is very gendered um, there's a lot of color and print which I love but at that moment I did not want any of that I wanted to have a be removed from the attention I was starting to get as a young woman because I wasn't comfortable with that so that's one of the strategies I used um, so I came here and so um, and just became very much like, okay, I'm not thinking about Islam. I'm not thinking about Pakistan. This is a new life for me. I'm starting over. And um, But even though I was doing that and even though I was kind of abandoning any kind of cultural or cultural sort of frameworks or boundaries that had been provided, I... Um, 
I, you know, so in that respect, I was able to experience many amazing things for sure. And that included being able to come out. But but at the back of my mind, there was still this weight. I mean, you can't abandon who you are. Right. I mean, that's just you. So I think the older I got, the more this hauntingness of Pakistan started happening. You know, I would have very specific dreams about being back in Karachi. And and it was very um, difficult to just say I I'm not going to think about that, you know. Um, I also, something amazing happened. I started, menta- I mean, uh, started meeting people. I, you know, one of the first person I'd met, I, it's hard to meet, it used to be hard to meet, to me at least, queer Pakistanis in this country, right? Because it's like South Asian spaces are mostly Indians. And so, um, but after 9-11, I started really thinking more about Pakistan in a certain way because of the war on terror and the way Pakistan was sort of separated from this Indian context was Afghanistan and Pakistan were all lumped together in sort of the war on terror. So I was starting to see that clearly where India is going and where Pakistan is going is very different. You know, European and American airlines stopped going to Pakistan, for example. And, you know, even for me, when I've got experienced people being hostile, if I say I'm from Pakistan versus um, if they think I'm from India, right? So there's been all this stuff. So I started to really feel like it's... I really need to need to figure this out. I really need to figure out a way to go back and not just go back and be with, you know, with my family because it'll, then it'll be back to where it was, right? It was about figuring a different way to be. Like, I wanted to be myself in Pakistan. And so because I started meeting activists, because I started meeting people who were actively either living there or going back and forth a, a lot, so, like, they had a much more current relationship because my issue was my family had come here, so I didn't have, like, this ongoing relationship with a physical relationship relationship with Pakistan, but it was always in my heart. And so in 2012 is when I made my, yeah, 2012 is when I made my first trip. And, um, and I've just been going ever since. And, and it was, you know, it was about just connecting with folks, friends, like I traveled with friends, I've stayed with friends, everyone that I've interacted with, they're all either LGBT folks themselves or allies. Um, I have friends who are academics who teach feminism. I even got to speak at a class. I mean, that was just incredible to come in and talk about my work in the U.S. in a class in Lahore where where my friend teaches was just, I was like, I don't understand. Like, this is incredible, you know, that they want to hear from me and that I'm here. Like, I'm in this moment. I'm actually talking about queer Muslim activism in the U.S. and, um, And so... You know, or like whether it's like shopping and going out with my um, friends who are gay and trans women and and just also seeing that Pakistan is not that big, bad, scary place that either my mom led me to believe or definitely the media here leads me to believe that there's actually ways for me to create space there. And um, and it's it's so incredible because then it allows me to have to love myself in a way to remember where I come from. So when I come back, even if people do ask me stuff like. Or, you know, someone commented, oh, I'm so glad you're back from a, you're back home safely or, you you know, something bad didn't happen to you there. And I'm just like, that's home, though, for me. And what does that mean, though? You know, can we talk about the bad things that are happening to people here also, like to my community here? Um, so, so yeah, so I call it Blingistan because I've it's sort of like coming home to this place that 
is is very special to me and I love bling and a lot of my bling is inspired by growing up in Pakistan because it's super super blingy there um, it's like I feel like every time I leave it's like every, the color and the bling just gets sucked out it's like someone literally takes a vacuum and sucks everything out and it's very sad <laughs> and as you can see you know this is a rickshaw I mean I know you can't see it but um, on the podcast but it's you know it's like my favorite mode of transportation and it is as decorated as this model is and everything everything has so much color and I love it <laughs> I mean I'm even struck by you know I've spent plenty of time in DC offices and this <laughs> is yeah, you know, just among the most colorful and welcoming thank you thank you yeah it's it's there's a lot going on here yeah. <laughs> like, DC is not no it's not <laughs> known for this either the welcoming or the colorful right but you've also found your way to advocates for youth right yeah and sort of that you've found uh, a place where professional work and personal passions, personal convictions all come together. Right. So how, how did you end up here? Yeah, I got really lucky. So I, um, I, so my career in itself is pretty accidental because I graduated with a sociology major with a women's studies minor. So clearly didn't expect to end up anywhere. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, this is like they've been threatening from the, you know, like it's been a long, long term thing. You know, you're not gonna find a job. You're not gonna. Especially after from a South Asian context where the expectation was that I would go to medical school. Um, so I ended up doing public allies once I graduated from college. And that connected me to my first um, choice, which was um, the LGBT Center, which was called Horizons Community Services before Chicago, Chicago's LGBT Center. It was like the pre-organization to that. And I got to work with LGBT youth, especially uh, specifically LGBT black youth. And I got to see firsthand the racism. I mean, that really is sort of the grounding for... Um, for how I understand the LGBT mainstream community. I saw so much racism that they experienced from within the center itself, from gay, um, cis, uh, white folks. And it was heartbreaking to see that even the center where they're supposed to get support is actually... Um, ex, you know, actually perpetrating ex racism. The neighbors were racist because Chicago is very segregated. Um, but it kind of provided me with a sort of this understanding of like of social justice and what it means um, to bring that to the LGBT mainstream community and uh, and that our work is not done. Like just because we're part of the LGBT community or if I go to a space that's LGBT, it doesn't mean anything really because if I'm Muslim or if I'm a per person of color, if that is not something they get, then I'd rather not engage with that space. Um, and so I, I came to D.C. and I actually ended up working at the National Youth Advocacy Coalition, which no longer exists, sadly, but it was the National LGBT Youth Organization. Uh, I came to D.C. to work there because I wanted to bring what I learned in Chicago to the national level and because NIAC was such a social justice um, kind of oriented organization. And I just recently you know, posted on Facebook some um, uh, amazing materials they produced after 9-11 along with AFSC uh, that was about anti-war. So they were making the case about why because you know after 9-11 everyone was like let's go do it let's go you know bomb these countries like feminist majority was selling or giving out these pieces of burqa that was supposed to be like uh, lib representing liberation of women and um, and so I got really lucky to end up in NIAC and NIAC used to work closely with advocates for youth and so when I left NIAC I ended up here and actually started uh, initially with um, U.S.-based work, but now I'm doing primarily international work, and then we're also doing a domestic uh, Muslim youth project. Okay. And it's just been amazing. I've been here since 2005, and 
the the kind of support and growth that have been given here keeps me here. It's they're just it's amazing. What I know, it's remarkable work. Uh, can you tell more about sort of like what you're doing here? Yeah. So my current um, job is in the international division, and I provide capacity building to organizations working with young people, uh, specifically working on sexual reproductive health and rights in the global south. Uh, that includes LGBT work on LGBT issues. So right now, um, I'm working with an organization in Ghana, in Kyrgyzstan, uh, in Kenya, and in Pakistan, and it can really range from sort of providing them with support around um, how to develop youth programming or how to um, make sure that they're integrating young people in their work, like the organization that I'm working with in Pakistan that actually is working with uh, men who sex with men and trans women, but they don't necessarily have the expertise on young people, um, versus the organization uh, in Kyrgyzstan, which is just more support around sort of uh, more capacity building around sort of um, their... Uh, let, m- maybe because they're working with young women, very young women, and so it's uh, and uh, include and you know that also um, other marginalized communities, um, and so supporting them on figuring out like how do you make connections to lar- like other NGOs in Kyrgyzstan or how do you uh, make connections internationally because we you know what we do is we provide support and then we connect that to a national and an international context uh, because our other work is on uh, at, uh, U.S. foreign policy and U.N. work and so we want to connect young activists in those regions, in those countries, to that work as well. And so every year we have a um, youth conference where, you know, depending on funding, these young people come and they they meet with other U.S.-based activists and then they do trainings as well as uh, meet um, with congressional staff members and the U.N., USAID, state, you know, so it's a kind of making those connections and bringing youth activist voices to the movement. And then the Wurzim Youth Project work is really interesting. I mean, I started it in 2008, and again, I was very lucky to start to be able to do it at Advocates for Youth, uh, outside of sort of my work with LGBT Muslim youth um, that I do on volunteer basis, but also some of it gets integrated within Ag- Advocates for Youth's uh, work. And we're actually, uh, I mean, I started in 2008 because I've gone to a conference in Germany, and I saw how this conversation on comprehensive sex ed and quote-unquote migrants um, didn't actually include people who were affected. You know, the assumption was that Muslims are not interested, they're the part of the problem, but no one was actually talking with them. And I got even asked, um, like, do you represent Pakistan or the U.S.? And I just thought that to be a ridiculous question. So it just kind of made me think about, well, who is doing that work on the national level here? You know, there's Catholics for Choice. There is, you know, other organizations that are talking about um, communities of faith uh, around sexually reproductive health and rights. There's RCRC, for example. But no one is really talking about Muslim communities. And so the idea was that if you support the Muslim community around these issues, you can start to push back also on this idea that Islam is inherently homophobic, inherently anti-women, um, or and you know Muslims are. And so we've been doing that work. We've been supporting organizations in the U.S., um, but now we're revamping it to actually work with Muslim youth on um, campuses and communities um, to kind of create this whole leadership um, model where all of these young people are then able to impact change on the local level as well as be spokespeople on the national level. Um, because we need more folks to be able to push back on the idea that Muslims are not interested in this, you know, and um, because they are, they are. It's just that they're not sort of heard in the same way. Like, I just got lucky that I ended up working and 
having this amazing platform, but not everyone's that lucky. And um, and we want young people to have the opportunity to become, have access to sort of the resources that Advocates for You can leverage for them. Fantastic. You, you've talked <coughs> elsewhere also about doing not only um, work with the Muslim Alliance here, but that you've, you know, I've seen you write or talk about uh, working with LGBT Muslims around the world. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, South Africa comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Is that under advocates' uh, work, or is that in sort of other kinds of work? Um, so, you know, our projects, we have projects in Kyrgyzstan and Pakistan. Oh. Um, so, it's, we don't really have a Muslim international framing at the, like, the work, the Muslim work that we're doing mm-hmm. is um, based in the U.S. However, you know, it comes up when I'm in, you know, when I'm working in Pakistan and Kyrgyzstan, mm-hmm. and in very different ways, because, you know, in some ways they're kind of flipped, um, because Kyrgyzstan, as you know, has a very sort of Russian imperialism, has, because of that, has also this very anti-LGBT context, uh, and yet it's secular. So it's very interesting, a secular Muslim country. Um, but then there's Pakistan that actually has, we have the 377 penal code, penal code thanks to the British, um, but really what you see, but not inherently very anti-LGBT policies, but what you see is more cultural, you know, there's a, and there's an, ext- an increasing fundamentalist Muslim uh, sort of context that's happening in Pakistan, which, you know, a lot of times we also talk about how it's response to extremism, extremism coming from the West, um, sort of right-wing kind of um, stuff happening in the West. Um, so it's not sort of as coherent, but my, my but my um, my international work has been, um, you know, I think a lot of times through through masjid. Um, so, for example, I spoke last year in Oslo and connected with some of the LGBT people of color organizations there, working with Muslim communities, and kind of, you know, I think in the West there is a certain um, we we kind of share each other's sort of um, perspectives and challenges around what it means to to push back on pinkwashing, to push back on Islamophobia, um, using that LGBT framing, right? Because a lot of these countries, and I think Europe is actually, like, especially the Netherlands is really, like, the that right-wing politician who really started this idea that um, LGBT people, or Muslims are inherently anti-LGBT, and that's really just sort of taken over by a lot of right-wing, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant populist politicians, including Trump here. So... That part of the work is interesting because we tend to share similar strategies and similar problems. And then, then there's work, you know, in Pakistan, which is interesting because Islam, you know, it's it situates itself in a different way. Like I think, I think that there is this way that many people want to be secular because, like I was saying before, in Pakistan, um, a lot of what we're fighting is actually closing space of civil society in general. And so you might not get killed for being LGBT, but you might get killed for saying something supposedly against the prophet, which is the blasphemy laws. And it's like people really have taken it into their own hands. And it's it's really, um, like that is sort of where it's there's an impact, right? Because there's a- attacks against um, minorities in general that does affect LGBT people. So I would say that it, Islam sits in a very different context there, right? Because Islam is understood in a different way or what people understand Islam to be and then kind of, and then using that as a way to push back on minority rights. Also, Islam works in a different way in Pakistan because um, I grew up during the Zayalhaq years, which I think I talk about in one of those articles. And um, Zayalhaq was the first, so he was a military dictator in the 80s, and he was the first sort of, um, 
he really was the m- marker around what happened around Islam in Pakistan. So even though Pakistan was created in 1947, the idea of conflation between Islam and Pakistan, um, like he really sort of conflated it in a way that we're still paying the price for. Um, and even though we had started to lose rights, like even under Bhutto, Bhutto is um, like... Um, Benazi Bhutto's dad, when he was in power, he is the one who who declared Ahmadis as non-Muslims. And so in our passport, we actually, in Pakistani passport, you actually sign to to say that you agree that Ahmadis are non-Muslims. And, they're, um, and so it started also, it has started a while ago, but really during Zal Haq, it really became cemented. And so, you know, Islam is, it takes up a more complicated space in Pakistan and within LGBT organizing than what it would take up space here because here it's like we are actually pushing back on, on tremendously on Islamophobia. So I would say that universally, you know, there is this interesting way that we're connected and there is more and more scholarship and work happening to reclaim Islam, um, which I think is great. And so there is sort of a global kind of um, activists that come together. So yes, in South Africa, I've actually never gone to South, the conference myself, but the Inner Circle in South Africa is able to host a space where they're able to bring, you know, folks from the West as well as Muslim majority countries um, and Muslims living in the global South who come together and kind of understand um, sort of what it means to have like a global connection to each other. I mean, so much of what you're talking about, so much of, you know, why I, I thought about this podcast almost a year before the election, mm. but certainly the kind of forces we're seeing, you know, in India and Pakistan, in the United States and Britain and the Netherlands, yeah. elsewhere that fuse nationalism and religion of the given society, yep. you know, with invoked gender, mm-hmm. and quote unquote, traditional gender roles, yep. sexual roles, you know, is a global phenomenon yes. and ironically made more powerful by social media and by modern media that could only things we couldn't have these quote-unquote traditional movements without right technology right right so that will certainly be a running theme through the conversations i have with activists from right. all around the world right i mean i'm struck and this is a much longer conversation than we have time for today but yeah. just thinking about how the sexual identities yeah, you know, the notion of indian and pakistani and bangladeshi and of the sexual identities that we recognize as lgbt mm. you know all are forged through various right. ways of colonialism. Right, exactly. Yeah. There is there is a I mean, you know, we talk about how we have uh, we have um same sex behavior and transgender um a sort of uh, presence and it, you know, sexual and gender minorities in South Asia pre mm-hmm. sort of pre-colonialism and it's really through colonialism where it became an opposition, right? So these identities, even when you look at Khwaja Siras in Pakistan, who were um, had a certain role in the in the Mughal time period, in the Mughal courts, became irrelevant after British came. The British is the one that brought us the 377 Penal Code and the Anti-Sodomy Penal Code. So absolutely, like there's a way that um, the modern identities are import as well. And so, you know, when I talk to activists in the Global South, they talk a lot about needing to come up with their own uh, understanding in, in their own languages, you know, uh, where it kind of reclaims sort of this idea that this is only a Western construct. And so it is very interesting and dynamic kind of, you know, and I'm always very fascinated by how activists on the ground are organizing and kind of figuring out what makes sense. So it's, you know, it's got this idea that it's always been there. It was penalized under colonialism. And now there is sort of this sense of like an emergence of Western identities and how are we responding to that and how are we figuring out what we take from that and then what we kind of make our own. 
this is a long, powerful, important mm-hmm. conversation, urgent. Absolutely. Where history and the present play out in our lives and in our politics right. side by side. Right, and I always get, you know, I'm always like, we can be h- historical around this. We cannot just assume that the West has always been sort of good on these issues, and then now we're going to go and supposedly liberate all these brown folks, um, uh, black and brown folk, LGBT folks, and that they don't have any agency in the way they, they can actually respond in their own context. The microphone can't pick up how I just rolled my eyeballs. <laughs> right. I know we've talked about that before. Exactly. You know, and sort of you know, keeping an eye on your schedule, I mean, I think, you know, what, you know, with the time we have left to talk about how, you know, two th- things that come to mind, um, you know, that are related, and one of which is how the intersection of being a dedicated activist with your personal life. I mean, mm. after all, at the end of the day, it is our gender identities, it is our passions, our desires that lead us into these worlds, into mm. these identities and communities, and how being an activist overlaps with that for you. Right. Yeah, I mean, right now I really struggle with, uh, as I was telling you when we were walking in the office, is um, how do I get time for myself, you know? I mean, I think as I've gotten older, um, I have to figure out, carve out more personal space for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's what I'm finding to be very challenging, especially in this moment where I always say, you know, I'm like, everyone's trying to find their Muslim angle now. And so everyone's like waking up to be like, oh my God, right, the Muslims. And I'm like, well, we've been saying this for a long time, you know, like definitely after 9-11, but pro- people before that as well, um, that we need support. We need, we need support. We need allies. We need folks to be in solidarity with us. So it's this moment where... Uh, it's it's like everyone kind of wants us to be you know somewhere, and it's it's really tough to figure out like how to um, be strategic, how to make sure that you know I have been thinking about that question because I do ask people to center LGBT Muslims when they think about. Uh, certain things because I'm also saying you know after Orlando for example when um, when LGBT Muslims are really pushed forward into the media as as really what the media wanted us to say is that yes it is that bad in Islam yes it is that bad that someone will pick up a gun and shoot a bunch of LGBT people in a club but of course we knew it was much more complicated than that and um, we wanted to share our stories we wanted to talk about our love for Islam we wanted to talk about how much our community has supported us um, and that is not a monolithic religion and um, and I think that that kind of was was really tough. But, you know, we also said, look, if you're a Muslim mainstream organization, you partner with a mainstream LGBT organization and you don't involve us, then you're basically um, invisibilizing us all over again. You know, because I think a lot of times there's this concept within mainstream Muslim society, you know, spaces that LGBT people are those white non-Muslims, right? And, um, and so we have to always fight that and say, no, we're within Islam, we're within your community and we're not some outlier that you can just ignore us. So, you know, we all always say like in this context central LGBT Muslims but then we also then have to struggle with well then what does it mean around showing up all the time in all of the meetings and all of the things and and where does it make sense for us to strategize so that is something I'm struggling with right now as someone who's sitting in all these intersections and so one of my hopes is through this for example the Muslim Youth Project that advocates for youth and through some of our work within Masjid itself and training and giving space to younger leaders is that hopefully there can be you know folks that can step up and they already have been but we just need more folks to step up and um, and be part of these conversations. Yeah, certainly recognizing how 
this podcast can be part of moving forward or part of the problem. Right. Something I will be wrestling with. Right, right. Wanting to do, you know, sort of make sure it's on the right side of that equation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But what, you know, else are you doing to take care of yourself during these challenging times? Well, I started therapy. (laughs) I have not been in therapy. um, I've never been in therapy before, but I think I really... uh, even though I've figured out many things, like despite loss, despite um, um, sort of having an abusive brother, you know, like there are active things in my life and active active historical things that I'm struggling with, you know, I, I've decided that, you know, it's time, like with support of my friends and my partner, that I um, should at least give therapy a try and see kind of where I land with that. And so try to, because I, I think my goal is to be actively present and joyful in my life, despite, n- despite the political context, despite sort of some of my own historical context and a lot of sort of living with loss um, I lost my dad when I was very young immigration itself is a sense is a kind of a loss and and actively reconciling with my mom all the time around who I am so those are some of the things and then me and my partner just got a dog uh, she's great she's over she I think we've had her for about six weeks now or five weeks something like that and she's just amazing and I used to have a dog who died two years ago and so we all and, miss rocket I know I know, my baby rocket. Um, and so I, I, re- I, I was really missing having a dog, you know, in this moment when I really need, you know, like I think it's, it's really amazing to have pets around and um, these, um, these companions around that can really help us be in the moment. So that has been really great. Mm. What, is there anything else we should know, you know, about the work or you're doing or about your journey? Hmm... I mean, I also talk about um, how much sort of fashion and that like that kind of piece plays out in my life. You know, even when I was uh, in Pakistan and kind of starting to wear all white, like I was very committed to it. You know, I made sure that the tailor, you know, because we got to go to tailors then had like a very good idea about what I wanted. And like, so, you know, so I and and even when I was sort of more masculine presenting, I was very clear about sort of what I wanted to project to the world. So I just want to add that, you know, because I know people can't see me, but it's sort of um, a part of my life that I actually, you know, I love like being able to uh, have sort of a way to express uh, sort of my gender expression in a very blingy way. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, if people want to know more about you or your work, uh, is, you know, is there anywhere they should follow you? Yeah, so I am uh, on Twitter uh, as Rugilicious. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I don't post a lot, but they can also find me on Facebook under the same um, sort of, they search for Rugilicious. And, and they can connect, me, uh, at, uh, connect with me at Advocates for Youth also. Terrific. Well, thank you so much. This has been just wonderful. Thank you, Ian. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to interview me. (laughs) My complete pleasure. So I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you're interested in reading more, check out the links to Aruja's Blingistan piece and the Metro Weekly interview on our website, RadioFreakUtopia.org. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Radio Freak Utopia. That's Radio Free, the letter Q, Topia, T-O-P-I-A. And consider subscribing to Radio Freak Utopia on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please take a moment to spread the words and tell your friends about Radio Freak Utopia and to rate us on iTunes. Word of mouth and iTunes ratings will help us reach more listeners. 
to build a podcast community, and to get the story of these remarkable changemakers out to more and more people. Please consider supporting us as well on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash radiofreakutopia. Your support allows me to create this podcast, including for me to travel, to interview activists and other changemakers in their own communities, and to make the podcast sound quality better and better. Finally, I want to offer my special thanks to everyone who has helped me get this podcast going, especially to the hundred or so original donors who got Radio Freak Utopia off the ground with their support during the founding Indiegogo campaign. My deepest thanks go out to all of you, especially to the podcast's original major donors, David Aronstein and Darcy Mercero, Michael Tino, Joseph Barrios, Jen Gilbert, Stephen Bennett and Mihai Petru, uh, Tamia Buckingham, and Mom. Thanks, Mom. Check back in two weeks for our next episode of Radio Freak Utopia, and thanks for listening.